You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Madison Reed is revolutionizing the way women color their hair with gorgeous, salon-quality, multi-dimensional hair color delivered right to your door on your schedule. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and who have loved Madison Reed. Visit madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with the promo code WRITERS. That's madison-reed.com and the promo code WRITERS. This holiday season, you can give your friends and family of the great holiday arrangements from Mrs. Fields. Cookies! Remember the first time you had one? I do. It was at the mall and you could smell it everywhere. Oh my God. Yeah, they're, they're so soft and chocolatey. Mrs. Fields are the perfect cookies and they're what everybody wants this holiday. So here's an exclusive deal for Crime Writers on listeners. Go to Mrs. Fields, MRSFields.com. Click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner and enter code CRIME Fine. to save 20% on any Mrs. Fields product, including their best-selling Peace, Love, and Cookies tin, which comes with holiday favorites like nibbler, bite-sized cookies, brownie bites, and more. Just click on a microphone and enter promo code Crime, Crime to get 20% off any product at mrsfields.com. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, journalism. And this week, we'll talk about the new documentary, Voyeur, about a motel peeping Tom and the Jim Dandy telling his story. Also, a major setback for a new Brendan Dassey trial, and we'll react to podcasting's hottest spoof show, zeroing in on the crime writers. Joining me to dive into all that is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and host of These Are Their Stories, a Law & Order podcast, Stephen Flynn. Hello, Kevin. How are you? Stephen Flynn? <laughs> what is that? Oh, yes, I know you're <laughs> Also with us is journalist, true crime There's author. There's a bomb in here. <laughs> a coconut bomb. Kapari. Kapari. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, former defense investigator, and bovine namesake, Laura, a.k.a. Lauren Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Uh, no news on the cow front yet people so don't get too excited but on the cat front rocky the cat little kitten um has taken a liking to fireman ken and at like three in the morning every night he starts chomping on ken's mustache nice so (laughs) is your christmas tree still standing that's all we need to know oh it's still yeah the christmas tree is still standing there's a lot of needles on the floor but it is tied up like a uh christmas turkey so it's not going anywhere and finally, the man who looks through a people with a slightly suspicious gaze, the author behind the City Trilogy, and our favorite stage dad, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. How are you doing? Hey, you know what would happen if I married one of Gerald Foose's relatives? What? I'd be Toby Foosball. <laughs> <laughs> Just got that. Oh, yes. That's true. Well, we would not be staying at the family motel for the wedding. Oh. No, no. Anyway, that that's my value added for today. It is your value added. And for our listeners who have not yet watched Voyeur, the show we're going to be reviewing, and they don't know what you just meant, but it is a very, very good reference. So, um, Kevin, um, you, on your own, opened a Crime Writers On store. WTF. Well, well hold on. <laughs> my own. <laughs> 
Yeah, for a long time, people have said, oh, I want to get a Crime Writers on t-shirt or whatever. And there's a lot of companies that say, hey, we do podcast t-shirts and all this other stuff. And we just never got around to it. But yes, we now have a store that you can go to. At Threadless? Yes, at Threadless. The uh, You can get to it through our website by you know clicking at uh, crimewriterson.com or go there directly at crime.threadless.com. And there's a couple of different patterns. And then you can pick... Any kind of T-shirt, any color. Baby onesie. Baby onesies, coffee mugs, water bottles, shower curtains, throw pillows. I mean, they put it on everything. And so there's a couple of different patterns. We have the Crime Writers on logo. We have the the, uh, cover art for the, the episodes. Uh, we also have one that says, I'm on Team Toby. <laughs> Only Team Toby. And, and There's we, no Team Rebecca, right? Yeah, and we have one that says, I want my pet to be Cat of the Week. Right. And people um, have been buying them. We've only put them out on Twitter, and people have been gobbling them up. So. Right. So if somebody has a specific request of like a quote from the show or a design idea, should they email it in so that you can create that for the store? Yeah, because I have nothing else to do no, I think but break should. out Adobe Illustrator. So I can create. No, I I'm think just. They I'm should. just. Yeah. No, no. Send us. Of course, we always take ideas. Yeah. If, if you want to have Toby saying like it's an eight out of ten, or if you want yeah. Kevin saying uh, it's not stupid Deborah, it's Dirty John. Exactly. I think that go on. I one. thought so too. Uh, I thought the really? same exact thing. Yeah, but then people would be like, "Oh, I love that Dirty John podcast," and they won't know <laughs> it's about crime writers. On anyway. By the way, just you know, the great thing about the internet is if you have like a phrase that you think should go on a coffee mug or a T-shirt. You can go to this website and just make it yourself right. and keep all the money. Or they can go to our store and ask you to make it. I'd just say it's a democratization and of America. And then we can get like 50 cents from I feel that. like Abby Hoffman. Don't get, you can just do it yourself. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for setting up the store for us, Kevin. Yeah, um, quick programming note. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Western that is taking Netflix by storm, Godless. On the show. Um, but I have to tell you guys something else that happened today. Because it happened just today. Oh. I met, by telephone, Bill Rankin of the Breakdown Podcast today. Really? Oh, nice. Yes. What? Yes. Were you on uh, an addendum for Yes. Undisclosed? I was asked to guest host addendum on Undisclosed, the one that came out. I guess by the time this show drops, it will, have, it will already be out, the Thursday night episode they do. And I got all the stuff and, um, you know, a little insider baseball thing, although I edit undisclosed, like, I don't keep up enough with all the stuff they're doing to actually, like, be a great host. So I was basically like, send me everything you need me to know to host uh-huh. the show. And Colin Miller, Legal Siri, put together this great document. And the first up top was like, who are the guests going to be? And it was Susan, Colin, and Bill freaking Rankin. Mm. And I was like, er, my Gerd. So I met him today. We had a little phone call chat before the show started, then we talked Hi, a little bit afterwards. I'm Bill Rankin. <laughs> Have you been to court? Well, Have you met the judge? Kevin- She's I, really powerful. I got to tell you, Kevin, yeah. you do an amazing Bill Rankin podcast voice, oh, Bill Rankin. Uh-huh. It's not actually how he talks when you talk to him. He just sounds oh. like regular. Yeah, like- <laughs> Huh. Hey, my sister, what's up? No. No, not like that? No, he sounds like Bill Rankin on the podcast, but um, I don't know. He's wonderful. Just with like with F-bombs? No. They no. don't swear on that podcast. No, he's as nice and as uh-huh. smart and as generous and cool as you would imagine. And he's just not quite as podcast Bill Rankin. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a little bit of that, but mm-hmm. it was wonderful. So, Laura and Toby, I now have Bill Rankin's 
phone number, Skype address, wow. and email address. Is there anything that you would like me to ask him on your behalf? Um, <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I, I mean, I, I'm hoping for that story that he was doing to come back. I was really into the one that had like three episodes and then got continued and the guy's lawyers quit. Yeah. So you've been having a big week because you guys hung out with reporter Amber last week. I mean, I feel Amber like Hunt. I need to live vicariously through Rebecca right now. Yeah. <laughs> I think that proves that Amber Hunt and I do not hate each other, even though I was critical. Why don't you her... like uh, just say what You're happened? You're getting a so that, like, Christmas card now, Kevin? Yeah, people who don't follow us on Twitter oh, like, know what well, happened. Amber Hunt is the reporter from the, the Cincinnati Inquirer and the host of the Accused podcast. Yes. And we all loved season one. Season two came. Season one, by the way, is one of my favorite true crime podcasts of yes, all time. Yes, I know that. And season two is also good, but I had a lot of problems with the technical side of it. And I did say later, and I wish I'd said it in the show instead of just saying it on Facebook. It's not Amber's fault. It's unfair to Amber. And by the way, the whole they show gave her, was remixed. She, yes, because they threw everything on her. Right. You know, it's like you're going to be a newspaper reporter, but you're also going to be the editor and the photographer, and you're going to run the press. You know, it's like th- those aren't all. You know, it's not fair to. to you do know, that. they remixed the whole season two after I our know. episode. Well, great. <laughs> well, so I want to know why she was really here. Because when I said, why are you here and what are you doing? She said, I'm looking in your window. Right. <laughs> right. So Amber was in New Hampshire reporting a future story. We can't tell you what it is because we're responsible like that. But we she don't was actually here. understand it. Yeah, we also understand <laughs> it. She was here reporting a story and she just happened to say like, I'm going to be in this town and I have to drive to this other town. Um, is there any chance we could meet up? And I was like, oh my God, the town we live in is in between the two towns yeah. where you're flying into and have to go. So we met up for dinner, and Amber Hunt, by the way, is very awesome. nice, awesome, awesome, very sharp, and sassy. She had you earrings more... that were a four-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> so she just played straight, you know, on her podcast. But you could tell she's a lot of fun at a party. She is. In fact, Laura, I really think you and Amber should hook up. I think you guys get along very well. Yeah, maybe right. you could get a cow named after her. <laughs> I, you know, I do have connections in the cow community, so it's a possibility. Now, Toby, one other follow-up from last week, because last week we heard that your daughter, Sadie, is a superstar and was the lead in the middle school musical production of Cinderella that was being staged this past weekend. How'd it go, Toby? How did it go? Well, the uh, the initial drama was that we had a snowstorm on Saturday, mm, so it had great. to be postponed and it was initially postponed until Tuesday, but then we had an ice storm coming in on Tuesday, so they moved it to Monday night. But it was really good. It was awesome. She did a great job, and it's kind of funny because she didn't do much like rehearsing or anything at home, so it kind of showed up. It was just like, okay, let's see what happens. She was awesome. A lot of the people who were also in sort of key roles were her friends. And they, they did a great job. It went off without a hitch. So it was nice. It was really cool. So she basically, as you said, did no prep and went on the show and it was just fine. <laughs> Who does that sound like? She did a lot of stuff at uh, all four of us rehearsals at like school and stuff. But yeah. it oh. wasn't like she wasn't like coming home and like, let's read through the lines. Yeah. Or, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, practicing the songs all the time. She just did what she had to do. I did it in at study school. hall. Leave me alone. Yeah, she's she's not doing a Teddy Lavoy. Our son right now is like in the chorus of the High School Musical, and he's showing us 
every dance move and singing all the harmonies to all the obscure songs that he's in. Bye bye, Birdie. Yes, and we're just sort of like, oh, that sounds good. I'm sure when we actually see it, you're a little. It'll harmony all make will sense make when sense. you put it together. Your right. one dance move in the kitchen right. will make sense. It's like you're, looking you're at just a, one piece of a hole. It's like looking at like one piece from a ransom note. It's true. It's an R. I wonder what the rest says. <laughs> so, Toby, do you feel like like you bursting with pride because your daughter is like going to be a future Broadway superstar? Yes or no? Uh, there's no doubt. Oh, there's good. no doubt. Good. It was one of those funny like parenting moments when you're like, oh, all right. Well, I guess she's not like a little girl anymore. Oh, no. I just wanted to cry a little bit. Yeah. I did. Well, uh-huh. okay. Compose yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on, shall we? Kevin, can you please read this for me? True crime update. Yes, it's true. After two weeks in a row of me saying crappy things about the making a murderer case, there was actually a huge development last week in Brendan Dassey, the actual like uber victim in this whole miscarriage of justice, his effort to win a new trial. As we do with all things to do with making a murderer, we asked our resident legal eagle, Lara Bricker, to look at it. <laughs> Lara, what the hell is going on now? I only wish this were fake news and not real. But um, alas, it is true. So poor Brandon Dassey. Last Friday, um, we'd been waiting for the full federal appeals court to rule in the ongoing appeal in the latest saga here. And they ruled on Friday that the confession given by Brandon Dassey should not be thrown out. So this makes it much more unlikely that he will be released from prison. So it was close, though. It was a four to three vote that the full United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit ruled that Brandon's confession had not been coerced. <sighs> and do they not watch the, the documentary? They obviously did not the, watch it. <laughs> I can't even. I'm going to hold my swear words in check, but you all know what I'm thinking right Don't now. Don't hold them in check. So well, after the first five minutes of the show now, you can let it rip. Okay. <laughs> this is just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's Christmas, people. Come on. So this decision from the Seventh Circuit reverses the federal court judge's ruling last August um, when that judge overturned Dassey's conviction, citing his age and his lack of guardian during the questioning by police. And, you know, all of us that had watched this thought was the correct decision. And then as as we had been following, that was appealed and appealed and appealed. But at this point, this is kind of the end of the story in a way. So the uh, judge for the majority wrote in his um, decision, and this is the quote from that, as to why they felt this way. Dassey spoke with the interrogators freely after receiving and understanding Miranda warnings. Nope. um, Like he could really understand. And with his mother's consent, the interrogation took place in a comfortable setting without any physical coercion or intimidation, without even raised voices. And over a relatively brief time, Dassey provided many of the most damning details himself in response to open-ended questions. On a number of occasions, he resisted interrogators' strong suggestions on particular details. Also, the investigators made no specific promises of leniency. (sighs) So it's just horrible. But there is hope. I mean, at least the other three understood the reasoning of how ridiculous this was. So the dissenting judges wrote that this was a profound miscarriage of justice. What occurred here was the interrogation of an intellectually impaired juvenile, Dassey was subjected to a myriad psychologically coercive techniques, but the state court did not review his interrogation with the special care required by Supreme Court precedent. His confession was not voluntary, and his conviction should not stand, and yet an impaired teenager has been sentenced to life in prison. 
So, Laura, what are legal experts saying about Brendan's chances of his appeal being accepted by the Supreme Court? Well, so that's the the next thing is that the other option he has at this point is to take it to the Supreme Court. And his attorneys say that they are going to try to do that. Um, That's their intention. They say this is profoundly disappointing. Legal experts are saying, like, good luck. It's more likely that his request will be denied, meaning he will serve the remainder of his life term in prison. He is eligible for parole in 2048. Michael O'Hear, a professor of law at Marquette University, said any appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court is a long shot. While the numbers vary from year to year, the court normally agrees to hear only about 1% of the cases in which its review is sought. Hmm. And another um, professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law said the odds of getting the U.S. Supreme Court to take a case are statistically better than winning the lottery, but not much. Hmm. So, yeah. But I guess we've got season two now. I don't know. Yeah, so Toby, knowing what we know now with setbacks in both the Avery and Dassey appeals, do you think that people are more or less likely to watch the Making a Murder a sequel that we know is coming out on Netflix? Well, look, I, I would assume that people will be so flummoxed by the whole thing with Dassey yeah. that like, I know that I would watch just to kind of figure out what the thinking is because... It seems to it doesn't pass sort of the common sense test. Mm-hmm. And I often, I think, on the podcast argue about that it's not always just one case. It's like, how do you, looking at thousands of cases, how do you proceed in a way that makes sense mm-hmm. as, as sort of a system? But, you know, in, in this particular case, I, I just don't see how the system is pushed forward by, by what's going on. When we've originally talked about it, Make it a murderer. You know, I talked a little bit about, you know, society puts different priorities on on different people, right? And I think it was around the same time as that Stanford rape thing Mm -hmm. where he's clearly guilty and he's let off because he's got such promise. Yep. And then you have a kid like Dassey who is clearly innocent and they're just willing to keep him in jail for the rest of his life. I mean, there's an outcry because there was making a murderer. But if the, if he didn't have that kind of notoriety, I'm sure it would just pass unnoticed. Yeah, he has so, no value, so to speak. Right. Exactly. Right. Your question about whether you know these developments will drive additional viewership to the sequel. I mean, I think people were going to be watching regardless. Yeah, I think because so too. the original was such a big hit, and even though the most casual viewers already going to know what's in the news and they already going to know like the ups and the mostly downs of these appeals. Yep. I think they'll watch because of the sense of injustice. That's like the drama that you would get narratively within anyway. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that they can, uh, I, I don't know if there's a, a correct term, but as far as hate watch it, for the sake of, you know, legal system hate watching. I mean, I think that they'll watch it just so that they could be even angrier about what they've they've seen and consider a miscarriage of justice, whether you think one of them or both of them are, are guilty. I think it's important to realize that we are part of a very small audience of legal system watchers. We think everyone is on Twitter seeing these developments and clicking these links and figuring this stuff out and reading all about it. It's like you look even at our audience, you know, our like relatively big audience, about 5% of our relatively big audience actually follows us on Twitter. I don't think that the same audience who watched Making a Murder Season 1 necessarily has been keeping up 
with legal developments. And I think legal developments that have been happening, the, the introduction of Kathleen Zellner, the injustices to Brendan Dassey, like his hope for possible release and then all the crap that's been thrown at him since then. I don't think most of America who watched Making a Murder actually knows about this stuff. I really don't. So I think season two is going to be interesting. I think it's going to cover some of this stuff. I think you and I might watch it and be like, yeah, we know. Yeah, we know. Yeah, we know. I don't think we realize how in the loop we are and how out of the loop a lot of people are who just watch TV and don't listen to podcasts and don't you know, follow us on Twitter and so forth. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I think not everybody is definitely as obsessed. So they'll they'll have a whole new level of outrage when they find out what happened. That's right. And maybe something will happen in Wisconsin, which, by the way, I have learned not from just making a murderer stuff, but also from legal series Colin Miller, who's like been dropping on his blog different things that he's covering, things about like um, wrongful conviction compensation and other issues like that. Wisconsin is up there with the states that just, like, do this wrong. They just do it wrong. And I think that um, we, as, you know, East Coast Northern elitists, as, as like they used to say in the 90s, we tend to think of uh, certain states as being bad at this stuff. Wisconsin is one of the states that's bad at this stuff. And let's hope making a murderer helps uh, push that along. All right. So, Kevin, um, on a lighter note... We have one of these to read this week. Can you read this for me? Fake Fake crime crime podcast podcast update. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, it happened. It happened before last week's episode dropped, but we couldn't talk about it because it happened after we taped. The razor sharp satire slash maybe genius true crime investigation skills of John David Booter cut into the crime writers on fold. Uh, We were parodied. We'd like to start by saying a very special thank you. The reviews are in, and critics around the globe are universally praising our investigative prowess. We recently received a glowing review from the popular podcast, Crime Writers Off. Take a listen. Welcome to Crime Writers Off, the show where we talk about what's new in the true crime world whenever we have time off from professionally writing about crime. We're live every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 24 hours a day, and have been for the past six years. Now, today, we're talking about a new podcast, Done Disappeared. What do you think about this podcast, Stephen? You want to know what I think, Vanessa? I'll tell you what I think. I think Audible is a great service where you can get an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, comedy, and also the Brooklyn and Sheets are the yes. finest of quality. Even though someone said that it was impossible to be parodied. We were parodied. Yes. Now, Kevin, uh, you are Stephen. Yes. I am Vanessa. Uh, Laura Bricker, you are Lauren. What about you, Lauren? Mm, I'll have to think, but come back to me because I have a lot of thoughts about my cat. And the best. Bobby Tall. How about you, Bobby Tall? What do you think John David Booter's odds are in solving this case? I'd say like an eight or a nine out of ten. I think definitely, I don't know. Uh, Toby, I have to ask you, as the person I think, maybe besides Kevin for his amazing ad transition, was parodied the most what do you think about Bobby Tall? I mean, do you think he's a compelling character you could get behind? No. <laughs> no. It's the coarsening of our culture. <laughs> yep, they got it. <laughs> they, they saw into my soul and saw the uh, the deeply harbored resentments and homicidal urges. I think I... I... What's the matter? Bobby Tall, Lauren's cat, got your tongue. Whoa, whoa, wait, what are you doing? You can't satire me. You can't satire me. I can't be spoofed. 
I can't. I won't be spoofed. Jesus, Bobby Tall. We're just having a bit of fun. I can't be spoofed. <laughs> He's just a powder keg. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's just a matter of time until I snap for real. Yes. <laughs> So apparently, according to John David Booter on Disappeared, Kevin, you are sleeping all the time, except when you're reading ads. Right. Oh, my God. Steven. Steven, wake up. Daily Harvest sends superfood eats straight to your door with fancy schmancy smoothies, activated breakfast bowls. And, and I also believe that melted coconuts produce moisture and that Kapari, the podcast <laughs> lotion, is an incredible multitasker that makes my hands and face feel like I got kissed by a coconut. Kapari. Kapari. <laughs> it was good. I heard it, though. He did it. It was funny when yeah, he did it. Yeah, it was very yeah. funny. So, uh, Laura, what do you think of Lauren? Can we talk about something else? Anything else? We can talk about my cat. Yes, please. Anything else. He's cute and furry and meow sometimes. Um, Bobby Tall, what do you think about Lauren's cat? Uh, I don't know. I definitely like it. I think it, like a lot of these cats, it hits about eight or nine out of ten times that it tries being cute. Well, it's funny. We listened to this on the way home from school, and my son's like, Mom, you sound suicidal and depressed. <laughs> and I was like, I do. And and I am I am happy now that I have more cats, so I am not really that depressed. But it was it was pretty funny. I, I especially love the part where uh, you're like, Bobby Tall, what do you think about Lauren's cats? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe an adaptation. I thought the person that did you sound a little like Marcy from Charlie Brown, which I, which I think was perfect. A little bit. Yes. Well, I just want to move on because there is a new Dennis Appeared episode that dropped this week. Episode six, the yes. penultimate penultimate episode. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing that happened on this week's episode of the parody podcast, Dennis Appeared, was he kind of went after Nancy Grace <laughs> <laughs> in a way that was... Spot on. So spot on yeah. that I legitimately wrote to John David Booter and asked him if it was the real Nancy Grace on the podcast. <laughs> Good evening, I'm Nancy Grace. Bombshell tonight. Clara Pockets went missing in 1987. And after that, not a word. Nada. Zilch. Nothing. Zero. Not a peep. Not a whisper. Not a word. What was the answer? Nope. Oh, no. <laughs> it sounded to me like it was the actress who did you. I think it may I mean, have just, been. Yeah, okay. Maybe. Uh, Toby, um, Nancy Grace on Done Disappeared, A, got her real name dropped, and B, accused John David Booter, the fake podcaster, of trying to solve this fake crime, of having committed this fake crime. How accurate does that sound to you, Toby, from the little <laughs> that you know about our friend Nancy Grace? Uh, that was my favorite part of the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to see that in John David Booter, I have a kindred spirit, at least in that regard. <laughs> um, and as John David Booter said, what he needs to crack this case isn't clues, isn't evidence, it's attention. Attention. For Clara Pockets right. and her disappearance. Well, I can tell you one thing. She's getting some attention in my town this week. Really? Yes. I, I got a um, text message from my minister yesterday who finished listening to Dunn Disappear <laughs> uh -huh. and said, I want to let you know, I think we should add Clara Pockets to our church prayer list. So, <laughs> oh. I mean, I, I think that this could be it. This could be the thing that pushes Clara Pockets back into reality. Dear Anglo-Saxon God. Yeah. As, as, please find Clara Pockets. As you say when we watch The Crown and when, we watch... When the uh, Queen prays. Yes. 
Dear Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> so, um, please take care of my corgis. She was also adding Bobby Tall to the uh, prayer list. You're in her thoughts. So, Kevin, <laughs> okay. now that we know that poor Clara Pockets is a dishwater blonde, mm-hmm. has chunky black highlights, uh-huh. has one glass eye and one green eye. Is also a black woman is also with an one leg. African-American beauty queen with <laughs> one leg. And also may or may not be running a brothel in the forest. Um, what do you think happened to Clara Pockets? She's right now sleeping in a bed on Brooklyn and sheets. <laughs> Luxury bedding underpriced. You have to try these That's sheets today. That's what Vanessa today. would do. She would laugh. Brooklyn <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brooklyn and cuts out unnecessary markups, retail licensing fees, and manufacturing waste in order to offer high-end designs and exceptional savings across their collection. Brooklyn and Sheets were named the winner of the best online betting category As by they Good House. Been. Now I love my Brooklyn and Sheets. Me too. They're well, of course, Rebecca. They're the same sheets. Mm-hmm. We each love the same sheets, mm-hmm. but that's not a good sample size. Sure. Let's get a couple other data points. Laura, you have Brooklyn and Sheets. Are they like the most amazing shades ever? They are, and I just washed them today, and I was thinking, I think I need to get a second pair of the Brooklyn and Sheets because nice. I don't even want to put my old sheets, like I have like two or three other sheet sets, and I don't even want to put them back on the bed. So I just keep washing the Brooklyn and ones because they're so comfortable. <laughs> Bobby Tall, what do you think of Brooklyn and Sheets? <laughs> I'm actually, I'm a little bit nervous tonight because since we've gotten them, I literally, I wash them at night and then I put them back on. So this will be the first night since we got them, which I don't know how many months that is, that I'll sleep on other sheets. Oh, no. How will you possibly get by? So anyway, it's breaking my streak of like four consecutive months. Yeah. On Brooklyn and (laughs) Sheets. These sheets sheets cannot be parodied. They cannot be parodied. Exactly. You spend a third of your life on those sheets. And in your case, like a second of your life. Like five eighths. (laughs) Something like that. Look, Brooklyn and Sheets has an exclusive offer just for our listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code CRIME, crime. at brooklinen.com. Brooklyn is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee or 60 days if you work third shift and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. There's no reason not to give these sheets a try for yourself or give them as a gift this holiday season. Or screw your in-laws and keep them for yourself. Give the gift of luxury seats. <laughs> sheets. Luxury sheets. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code CRIME at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code CRIME. Brooklinen. These are the best sheets ever. What else you got, Kevin? Well, speaking of luxury, I love me a good piece of steak. You do. And that's why I'm so happy that Omaha Steaks is a sponsor of Crime Writers On. Oh, my God. We've gotten so many like tweets and emails about Omaha Steaks this week. It's I guess blowing my mind. I guess that's Nebraska. I don't know. I've never looked at a map. <laughs> Toby mentioned it. We had a big snowstorm this weekend. We did. And I really wanted to have my filet mignon. You did. So I- We uh, had no like power. You had to go outside and grill that thing. I had to, t- I had to take the gas grill, <laughs> and I had to push it out of the garage, just far enough out of the carbon monoxide- danger zone guys into the snowstorm that's right fortunately it was covered but i was still able to cook myself up some fantastic omaha steaks and you can get them too 
keep them for yourself or give them as a gift because Omaha Steaks is giving an exclusive deal just to our listeners. Just listen to everything that you'll get for less than $50. All right, two, go ahead, make a list. Two filet mignon, two top sirloin, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, four kibasa sausages, four burgers, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha steak seasoning packet, and four additional kibasa sausages for free. That's a lot of freaking food. It's a lot of meat. It's a lot of meat. Sorry to our vegetarian listeners, but the meat's really good. The meat's Just, really yeah. good. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter our code CRIME, CRIME in the search bar, and you will get a 75% savings. It's a gift that's guaranteed to be a hit. It is. Moving on. This week we are going to be talking about the Netflix documentary Voyeur. It is a story about a story written by a prominent writer about a motel-owning peeping Tom who spied on his guests for decades. Legendary journalist Gay Talese spent 30-plus years preparing to tell Gerald Fu's story and yet seems to be blind to the unreliability of his subject. Now, as we are doing now on the show... Uh, Voyeur is a movie that's on Netflix, a documentary that is available. And if you haven't watched it yet, we are going to be discussing the plot points of the documentary during our discussion. And if you'd rather not hear those because, I don't know, you hate us, you don't want to get spoiled, whatever, you can look at the show notes right now and just fast forward to where we will tell you whether or not you should watch Voyeur, thumbs up or thumbs down. I will put the timestamp in the show notes. Or save this podcast, watch it, come back. Just don't lose the podcast somewhere in Apple's shitty podcast app. <laughs> it's in there somewhere. <laughs> That's a conversation for a different day, yeah, right, that, Kevin? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. That's why Stitcher has a much better app. So let's talk about this documentary, Voyeur, and how it opens with Gay Talese, who is a legendary mm-hmm. journalist slash writer. He's written some of the most famous pieces of American modern Essays. Wrote the best magazine article of all time. What? Uh, Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra has, a, has a cult. Yes. We open up on him, and it's just sort of a portrait of who he is in his life, and we see a guy who is beautifully dressed, because his dad was a tailor, has an office in his brownstone on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I like how you called him a Jim Dandy, because that's really what he was. Multi-floored brownstone. Yeah. He's got two uh, life-size cutout. Yes, but we see those, I think, in later scenes. I don't introduce us to them immediately. I think that the documentary opens on this very, like, positive Jim Dandy note about Gay Talese. And at this point, Kevin, I turned to you and I said, do you know any fucking journalists who live this way? And how much do you want this guy's life? So your initial impression. <laughs> oh, my God. Gay yeah. Talese. He's a society guy. I mean, he's uh, in great shape for 80 yeah. And uh, had a fantastic career, has enough money that he can live in Manhattan in this beautiful place with in his basement with a shrine to himself. <laughs> but, but like he has all of his, his materials and notes for decades of work yeah. in these boxes that look like-, like Somebody these... is decoupaging those boxes. I want to know who's doing that. Yeah, it's like he's scrapbooking on the outside. Yes, he's decoupaging his own headlines on boxes within which are the files on the headlines he has decoupaged. Right, and then he pulls out one box, and there's this uh, story that is sort of a leftover from his book, Thy Neighbor's Wife. His famous book. His famous book, and it's about this voyeur who owns a motel. 
So then we get to see um, the audience, a little snapshot. I mean, I think that this documentary does a good job maybe assuming that much of its audience doesn't read The New Yorker, doesn't travel in those same kind of like literary circles and doesn't know who Gay Talese is. Because mm-hmm. this is a nice snapshot. We see him at home and then we see him through his career, through these old film shots of him on Phil Donahue and so forth, being this journalist slash provocateur uh, covering things like the free American sex movement that was happening and actually like participating in some of the sex as he was covering a journalist and sort of like being out there. And at the same time, he is telling us the story about a tip he got from this guy who claimed that he is spying on the guests in the motel he owns as a voyeur, frames himself as a voyeur, Gaitley sets up a relationship with him, starts corresponding with him in 1980? Like, yeah. a really long time ago? Toby, we have now a relationship between a journalist and a guy that's been going on for a long time. We hear them both describing it because, by the way, Foose is also in the documentary. And it reminded me... I can't speak for you, of another blockbuster media thing that we talked about in the last year or so. Did it remind you of anything that we've talked about in the last year or so, Toby? Uh, are you talking about S-Town? Yes, <laughs> I'm talking about S-Town. Yeah, no, it it, it did in that I, I think this guy, Gerald Foos, has a fair amount of similarities with uh, with John McLemore. He, he's a misfit. Like in this case, Foos, is a, he's a voyeur. And you come to kind of realize that he doesn't have much of a a friend group, you know. Mm. I mean, he's basically it's him and his and his wife, who's not all that talkative, as far as I can tell. <laughs> mm-hmm. She says like four words the entire time. <laughs> and then um, he sort of courts this attention from Gay Talese, and when he first gets in touch with them, it's because he knows that Gay Talese is working on Thy Neighbor's Wife, and he thinks that he has like this important information. In that when he's doing this, the spying on people in his motel from this crazy sort of catwalk and air ventilation system that he's got so he can spy on people, he takes notes on all this stuff. And so he thinks that what he's doing is basically compiling this enormous data set about the sexual proclivities of Americans. But in in the course of the entire relationship between uh, Talese and Foose, it ends up being about 30 years of this guy just like marking down like what he's observing. Mm. So it's it's sort of this eccentric guy who's got this sort of grandiose, egotistical, narcissistic sort of view of himself and what he's doing and what he's capable of sort of courting attention from a prominent media source and the relationship that that builds there, which which becomes pretty complicated. It does. And now, Laura, I know that you also yes. drew that same comparison. I would say that Brian Reed is about one thousandth as well known as Gay Talese is in terms of like yes. the like you know journalism literary sphere at least at the time that John McLemore approached him versus this guy approaching Gay Talese how, how does the dynamic for you compare between Gay and the voyeur as he comes to call himself and you know yes. Brian Reed and John McLemore and let's just say like 
Sarah Koenig and Adnan Syed. How, how does the dynamic compare for you? At first blush, it seems sort of, well, it's the same. We've got, you know, prominent reporter becoming, you know, somewhat involved with the interview subject because it's a long-term project. But, you know, in the case of Sarah Koenig and also Brian Reed, I don't think they lose their objectivity as they are reporting the story. They still seem to be questioning things and trying to confirm things. And if you know, think back to S-Town, Brian Reed was actually trying to confirm whether or not this murder was covered up and this guy got away with it. And he confirms that wasn't the case. And he actually confronts John about that. You know, and then with Gay, Talese and the voyeur, it's, it's like, you know, you've got two narcissists feeding off of each other as the story is being told. So I don't think either one is really being truthful with themselves or with each other. It was really interesting to see how those two, you know, very similar characters who, you know, at first you're like, how can these two even be similar? You know, you've got this guy with this bad Elvis hair dye and these glasses that I I don't really understand. (laughs) And, uh, you know, this very dapper, well-dressed man who seem nothing alike, but they really are. And I think that's part of what maybe kept this relationship going on so long, right. um, that they just fed off each other. So, Kevin, Gaitelis isn't an amateur. Like He's been around right. the block, but he's in a different sphere than even like when you look at like elite reporters, like at the New York Times or the Washington Post or premier TV journalism outlets. Gay Talese runs in different circles. Right. He's like a society journalist. Mm -hmm. He writes for outlets like The New Yorker, Mm -hmm. which is not a traditional breaking news journalism outlet, although I will say they did publish the Harvey Weinstein allegations uh, in a way that the other outlets weren't willing to, which is great. But we get a window into their process. And we see Gay meeting with an editor there. We see him doing a book simultaneously with this article that's apparently coming out that's been being worked on for, what, 30-plus years. We see this conversation with the editor. We see a lot of process. We see a lot of guys wearing cashmere scarves. Why does nobody see all the red flags popping up in this story no, it's during why, all this why, premier no, journalism No, that we apparently see? other people are. It's Gay who's not seeing the red flags mm. with the fact-checking. You, you know, it's like, I think all of, uh, all, all of the nonfiction writers, you know, you bump into people and there are people or, or individual stories that you always want to tell mm-hmm. that you haven't gotten around to or you'd like to, you don't have the opportunity to, something happens, but you don't just go, nah, I'm, I'm just letting that go. Right. There are ones that like you just have to tell. Mm. There was this, you know, story about how the first lottery was developed. And it isn't a crime story, but it was one that I always liked and wanted to tell and I eventually did a, a book with a very small publisher be- just because I felt like I really want to tell that story. As a writer, I have to get that out. It's called and, American Sweepstakes if anyone's Yeah, my book is called American Sweepstakes. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a million seller. I have a million here in the cellar. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think Gay's the same way, right? He's had this idea, this relationship, this you know resource sitting in one he's of his decoupage boxes. He's been to the freaking motel, right? Yeah, right. And so he's like, "Yes, this is." There's, he's like, "There's something here, and I have to develop it." But maybe I've got these four other things, or maybe the time's not right. It just then the time came. He's like, "I'm going to, I'm going to do this," and he has so much, you know, invested. You know, time-wise, like all the times he th- he thought 
And again, the writers, we know this. In your mind, before you even sit down at the keyboard, you have sort of ideas about how it's going to flow and what it's going to be and what the, the tone is and all, you know, and you see the different bits. Oh, this is going to fit together like this. It's going to be great. The story about my red necktie falling in through the thing while the that lady gets crazy. a blowjob. Well, I love the visual. Oh, that was crazy. Not of the blowjob, but what of the little it? red tie. <laughs> Wait, can we just like pause for a second? Yeah. I'm curious to what you guys all thought of the use of the um, the dollhouse, the diorama style yeah. dollhouse thing to reenact. Because as we learn in the documentary, the hotel has been demolished. Uh-huh. They have some footage through news stuff, but like they don't have a motel in which to film anymore. So I'll, somebody somewhere made a little tiny. Right, I'll model. go first, and we'll run around the horn. <laughs> I liked it because again, it was utilitarian. They mm-hmm. didn't have access to it, and this was, it looked like this was Elvis. Mr. Foss that was doing all Foose. of the things Foos was <laughs> taking the roof off and everything like that and it added um, instead of, you could have done like you know the animation thing right like an American Vandal mm. and you could have had like you know these little figures giving hand jobs like they did <laughs> um, but it added it also added a, the tone of a bit of creepiness and um, God complex not, well okay God there you go the tiny little yeah. yeah yeah I hadn't thought of that but yeah. yeah I think that you know tone wise that worked that wouldn't work with a lot of other sort of like murder things where you pull the you know have the dead doll or something like that Could but we do I, a dollhouse of like Laura's house you open it, like, <laughs> tiny, like a million tiny little cats in there I think I think it was <laughs> it was unusual but I think it worked no I think it worked too and I was wondering I, I was very curious as to where it came from because I was I was actually it would not have surprised me if Gerald had actually made it himself oh, to kind of oh. relive like I mean seriously he was he was that creepy so I was I was intrigued by the dollhouse it's um, not glue keeping all these walls when together. They, they lifted the little <laughs> roof off yeah so Toby one of the things that struck me and I think also struck you is that my feelings about gay Talese have shifted a little bit because you imagine he is a seasoned journalist he's written a lot of stories and yet he doesn't seem to figure out at any point that this guy Foose might be full of it because little pieces of Foose's story bear fruit, right? Like, so he's heard Foose make this claim that I have a lot of memorabilia and he's like, oh, that can't be true. And then he goes to Foose's house and he does, in fact, have a lot of memorabilia. But then even when he's in the memorabilia room... Foose makes another claim, which is that, like, see this Mickey Mantle card? I used to have, like, a thousand of these. Like, there's just layers of bullshit on bullshit on bullshit, and Gay seems, like, perpetually confused, and you kind of feel like his meter maybe should be a little more fine-tuned for this. What do you think about that? Uh, I had a few thoughts, one of which was that, like, I haven't read a whole lot of his stuff, but my sense is that he's, you know, he puts himself in these, like, his journalism, and he talks about it very briefly, is like you can't do journalism from the side, you know, you got to put yourself in there. And I think he does a lot of that sort of new journalism, like Doonesbury had a bunch of cartoons when uh, that neighbor's wife came out sort of lampooning him. Yeah. Because it's like, Talese did this, Talese did that it, when he writes. So a lot of it's sort of, you know, his experiences that requires a different kind of observation and talent yeah. to sort of describe yourself and and your perceptions and your actions and things like that. So again, I don't know the entirety of what he did. So I'm sure people who do may be like, what the hell are you talking about? He did all kinds of other stuff. But my, my sense was, is that when, when he did step outside, now he's telling really somebody else's story. That's not where his skills necessarily. Right. It seems to me, 
And again, you guys are the nonfiction writers, so you know, tell me if I'm wrong. But things like just like making sure that he actually owned the hotel during the time when he says he did. It's basic. Like that seems to me to be like it's basic. You know, that would be like one of the first things you would do. Yes. Like there, there's just these these things that were easy checks that would have called all this stuff into question. He he didn't bother doing. And I thought that the the scenes in the New Yorker where they're where they're sort of negotiating with him and talking about how they went about publishing that article. And what they really wanted to do was kind of, they wanted to make sure that it was put forth as this is this guy's story, mm. not this is like facts that we've checked and, and and claims that we can verify. What you're basically doing is relating a story that was that this guy told to you. I think his editor at The New Yorker said it best when she described it as, you know, the ultimate single source story. Yeah. In, a way, in a way, it's like Serial Season 2 when we talk about Bo Bergdahl's you know, adventure. He's the only source we have for this. But I think that Gay, because he actually went to the motel at one point and walked the catwalk and saw the things that he saw, which was so outrageous right. that he was willing to buy into everything else that was outrageous because he's like, yeah, this is super crazy. So all this other stuff has to be crazy too. Right. But this is where it gets weird for me. I do feel like Gay Talese carved out a space for himself where he was given permission to go further and to do things that other people wouldn't be allowed to do, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think about someone like David Sedaris, right, mm -hmm. who is a longtime storyteller who first, I think, for a lot of people who listen to audio, came to prominence on This American Life. He told, like, the Christmas Elf story and a lot of personal essay stories, and he's written a lot of best-selling books that are true, I'm putting mm -hmm. in quotes, because they're through his lens mm -hmm. stories about his life and um, he is given a long amount of rope, even on This American Life, that other people who report stories on This American Life are not given because he's David Sedaris, because there's an understanding that this is like through his lens. Right. Mm. And I think Gay Talese in a, in a really like unusual space, when you look at like the elite publications that he has published in, like the Paris Review, the New Yorker, he has a place in that where like everyone is like oh no he's a journalist but he also gets naked and has sex with people for his articles <laughs> yeah. which by the way in this documentary so is, do put, I. is put out there as a thing that journalists do and like we see him <laughs> on the phil donahue show saying like as a journalist i had to experience it and be part of it actually what in journalism school you learn that that is not what you do you talk about it you show it you do not do it. That would be You're like not covering, supposed to accept gifts. And would, that's a hell of a gift. It would be like covering the opioids crisis <laughs> and like becoming a heroin addict. That's the only way to cover the opioids. Oh, you don't have crisis. to become an addict. But that's kind of what was going on at you know at that time. It's like Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like he's not doing like the reporting that you. He's like taking a bunch of drugs and going to the Republican convention and being like, "What the fuck?" And that's his basis of his story. I think the thing with him, and I and I think there's other guys, like I think Tom Wolfe was kind of like this. Oh, totally. And Norman Mailer, you know, it's these guys with these just absolutely enormous egos who consider themselves and their thoughts as being like a large part of the story yep. that's sort of contrary to the way we like to think about 
quote unquote straight reporting. Yes. The other person, like you, you were talking about how expectations are different, but like David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. whose nonfiction stuff I love, but is really like the more you read about it and find out about his his process, the more like fiction it is. Right. Like he, he just made up a ton of stuff. Right. That that would go into these supposedly nonfiction pieces and they're really essays more than reported stories i would right. say and then what happens in in this uh, documentary is that foose the voyeur when he's actually subjected to some part of the journalistic process meanwhile he's been voluntarily telling his story to this guy for 30 years the article comes out and then it's like, oh, my God, I didn't realize I was actually going to be in this article that was going to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Laura, um, what did you think he thought people would say? I mean, he's been participating. Does this Is also a, is this also yeah. a display of his narcissism that somehow he thought he was going to be some sort of hero when it came out that he was yeah. basically a peeping Tom for decades? I just call BS on him being all like, oh, my God, like he seemed so shocked and so upset when all of a sudden there's this huge backlash. And I'm like, like... Were you really that out of touch that you thought that this was going to be a good thing? But you know what? I think he was that out of touch because as the story goes on, you find out that like aside from his wife and Gay Talese and the film crew, that's pretty much the only people that he sees. Right. And even when they're not filming this documentary, um, he's very socially isolated. It seems like his interaction for the most part of his life has been simply watching people in creepy ways like he was doing. But I was just like, really? You really didn't think that this was going to be a problem? Maybe that's what turned his hair white. I don't know. (laughs) It's surprising though, Laura, you know this, how often actually that happens, that people you talk to uh, you quote or whatever sort of come back later. It's like as if they didn't understand what they were doing. You know, and I don't know why that is. I mean, it's not because they're all voyeurs and they're being portrayed in a you know, in a horrible light, but it just seems like some people work with you in a very cooperative way. You don't think there's a problem, and then they're just Boom. amazed that, you know, how could you have used that quote? Well, you said it, you how know. How could you have mischaracterized yeah. my version of the story? When, by the way, you've also gotten like four other versions but, but of the not story. Even, but not even, you know, the like you that what you would expect someone felt like they were taken yeah. out of context. Just all of a sudden, sort of the realization that they were in the story. They said what they said. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't see how. This guy could possibly, you know, feign ignorance that it's going to be his story. Now, Laura, you do a lot of, please forgive me for saying this. I think you'll understand the spirit in which I mean it when I ask the question. Today, you do a lot of like hyper local tiny stories, right? Yes. And and, like human interest features. And like you talk to people and then the article comes out. And even in the role that you play now, like as a journalist in a small region in a small place doing very personal stories, don't people sometimes say to you, like, oh, I wish you hadn't put that thing in there that I actually yep. said? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's always the story that you don't expect it on. Yeah. I have found this, like, over the years, there, there'll be a story, and you think you're doing a story that is really going to do some good, or a story that's, like, a, just a nice, heartwarming story. And you're like, oh, this is a nice... And then that's the story that somebody just freaks out on you about, and you're like... Where did that come from? Right. You know, when Kevin was talking about, you know, people changing their tune, I mean, one of the styles that I, you know, adopted is repeating back to people what they said during interviews. Like, I, you know, they say something and I say, so what you're saying is, and I I really started doing that a lot more as I got more experience because it seemed like that gave you a little bit more 
to fall back on when people tried to say, oh, no, I didn't say that. Well, you did, you know. Not only did you say um, it, but then I repeated it back to you and you <laughs> said, yes. <laughs> I don't think by and large people understand the dynamic, though. Yeah. Between reporter and subject. Mm. The reporter is, is trying to get a story and then the subject is trying to get across a picture of themselves or what they're doing or whatever. Those aren't the same goals. Nope. But I don't think I don't think that many people really understand that aspect of the dynamic. But there are different kinds of stories. I mean, there are the news stories that yeah. newsrooms put out every day where somebody did say something on the record and then you report it. And then there are the kind of stories we have a 30 year relationship with someone. They've shared a lot of correspondence with you. And you have also been a bad actor vis-a-vis actually also being a voyeur and like watching people have sex without their consent and then maintaining this relationship. And then- Who are you referring to specifically? Gay Talese. For the one time that he went- And then going to the New Yorker and selling the story and glossing over whether or not, making it a character and less of a fact-based thing. And then when your editor asks you questions about facts, saying- well, Brushing fact, aside the murder. The fact don't matter. Right, the murder that yes. didn't happen. That's a the big red flag. doesn't matter. Uh, it's about a guy. So there is, I think, a difference between Laura and her subject or the reporters in my yes. newsroom and the governor and the people in like the state senate and the people that Kevin and I interview for books about murders and somebody like Gay Talese who has a different bent and a different take. But when you say that people don't understand the power dynamic, Kevin isn't what this documentary doing? We see the story come out. We see Foos freak out about it. And then we see Gay put on his cashmere scarf and get on a plane <laughs> and try to talk the guy down, not because he wants to talk the guy down, but because he doesn't want his book sales to flag. Don't yeah. we also see it's like a way zoom out, like the bigger picture. It's actually about ego versus ego maybe bad journalism more than the actual story. You know, it's called voyeur, but it really is not about sex. I mean, they're really, I mean, you would think, you know, based on what the subject is, that it would be a lot more salacious. And the the stuff about the must ask, must understand questions and and answers about his sexual proclivity Mm. are handled very matter-of-factly. You know, he gives a sort of a straight story about like peeping on his aunt, and that's how he became a voyeur. And he's very proud of that, by the way. They don't linger on that, and they go to you know, they basically address what are you doing in the the, the catwalk, and he said, well, you know, how many times can you masturbate in a night? You know, three, four, maybe five. You know, just Ugh. I was there all night. But that's about it, about it, and they tell some of the stories, and then the reenactments are all these sort of slow. You know, sexy people shot through events. But that isn't what this is about at all. This documentary really is about journalism. And it's about... A certain kind of journalism. How the story goes wrong. And how we, in the beginning, we think we know what the story is that Gay is going to tell. And I think at first, as viewers, we also want to excuse the inconsistencies and brush them away. Because we like the thought of what this story seems to be. And we want it to be that. But, you know, it really is about an established writer who desperately wants what he is writing to be correct. Hmm. I think there's some stuff about, like, vanity journalism in here. I mean, I think that there is straight journalism. There's narrative journalism. I look at, like, something like S-Town, which isn't – it's not straight journalism. It's narrative journalism. Brian Reed puts himself in the story in S-Town. 
He talks about his comfort and discomfort with various interactions he has with people in the story. But ultimately, I think everything in Brian Reed's telling of the story can be vetted. Like, I don't think anyone's going to discount that so-and-so owns that tattoo parlor or that that murder didn't happen the way he found out it didn't happen or that John McLemore did die or didn't die on that day. No, but that would be an important one. The other things are not important. But I think that what this documentary shows is that there is an accepted cashmere scarf wearing level of vanity journalism (laughs) where certain figures in that world are given license that I don't think a young reporter would be ever be given. A dangerous amount of deference. Before we review the show, could I just like nod to one detail of the filmmaking that yeah. I loved? Go ahead. There were two protracted scenes where Foose was angry with Talise that were filmed while he was on his little stair chair that like <laughs> went down to the railing because <laughs> apparently the voyeur is no longer um, able to walk down the stairs or whatever. That thing was so slow <laughs> that he had to make up bad things to say because he was clearly aware of the camera crew filming him and he made his complaint on like step three. And then he was just filling it with more complaints the whole way down. What's the it stairs. made it like the turn? It like really it, we got a lot faster. <laughs> that was good filmmaking, yes or no, Kevin? I, yeah, I thought that was a great, <laughs> a great visual. It was a great visual, but it was also a great opportunity to grab his character because he was trapped for like seven minutes on this like stair thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he had no choice but to just keep talking. And they just left it all in the movie, and I loved that. Yeah, I loved it. I think it's time to just do a quick round robin review. Toby Ball, uh, thumbs up or thumbs down? Do you recommend to our listeners that they check out Voyeur on Netflix? Uh, thumbs up. It is. It's an interesting story. I'm always kind of interested in the dynamic between writer and subject and how that kind of plays out. And I mean, this is a really kind of a deep dive on that. It just it's two characters kind of interacting and each trying to get something from the other and and how that all plays out, I thought was was pretty compelling. What about you, Laura Bricker? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Voyeur on Netflix? Thumbs up. It's just really quirky um, in terms of the characters and watch for nothing else if to see Gay Talese getting fitted for his brand new blue suit. That was... Oh, yeah. Quite a scene. And also to watch Gerald getting very upset when he had to put on fancy clothes because Gay was coming over. Kevin, you want that life. Do you not go into the tailor getting the suit made? You want that yeah, life. I, I can't buy off the You want to have two so. life size cutouts of yourself in your own office. You know you do. I, know, I only have one. I'm going to give it a thumbs up as well. Um, for me, it's not just a commentary on the story and Gay and Foos and the voyeurism. It's also kind of a commentary on the way that generation, like the boomer generation, sort of views itself as being so important that I think they have to say, like, we should just believe and go with. And the pressures that come with that, i.e. the truth and journalism and facts. Um, I thought it was really interesting. This is sort of unraveling of these two characters at the same time and trying to ask the question, like, who's right or who's wrong. It goes well beyond spying on people in a motel. Kevin, what about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm also a thumbs up. I thought this was, again, not a story about sex necessarily, but it is a story about telling stories and the dangers of ignoring the facts and just, you know, turning a blind eye to what ought to be the truth. 
And by pursuing the real truth, who are you betraying? Your right. subject or your audience? It was, you know, even with the dollhouse, was a little creepy. Yep. Made me want to go take a shower and wash my hair with products from Virtue Labs. Yes. The hair care brand with the goal of giving everyone the best hair scientifically possible. Science. Rebecca, I want you to think back. Back to those days in the year is 2011. Yep. And in a laboratory, there are a group of bioscientists. Yep. Who are working to find a way to cure athlete's foot. Yep. And it might not be athlete's foot, but you got to go with me on this, okay? Yep. I didn't I haven't fact-checked this. But they discover a new protein that has the power to completely transform your hair. Yep. Do you want to, do you know what the name of the protein is? Uh Do you yep. really care? Nope. All right. Can I just tell you the name of the protein anyway? Yes. Alpha Carotene 60KU. Wow. It's amazing. It is amazing. But what it will do is it will resurface and fill in the cracks from damage and change your hair's quality and appearance forever. But the only place you can find it is in Virtue Lab's line of shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Not to mention each formula was created to address specific issues like heat damage, frizz, and that means more bounce, more shine, more strength and more life for your hair. You'll notice a difference right after the first wash. Okay, totally. I'm going to fact check this with you that in the way that Gay Talese did not. How's your hair, Rebecca, after using Virtual Labs? It's beautiful, it's thick, it's wonderful. And as you know, I sent a package to Virtual Labs, one of our listeners, Javachik, on Twitter, and she is still tweeting to this day about how thick, soft, and beautiful her hair feels. Are you ready to experience it? Our listeners can try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping with the code CRIME. Prime. Visit VirtueLabs.com to place your order. It's time to start treating our hair with a little more humanity. It's time for Virtue. VirtueLabs.com, promo code CRIME. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. The saying goes, you rob a bank because that's where the money is. Mm -hmm. But William Johnson... Willie Johnson, really? And of course he's from Florida. Yeah. Needed money, but didn't have the know-how. After holding up a credit union, police caught up to him three days later. He told them to plan his heist. He just Googled the phrase, quote, how to rob a bank. <laughs> Judging by his arrest, it seems the search results were not that helpful. Investigators say all the money was gone. Johnson said he'd used it to pay his rent, his electric bill, and spent the rest... On drugs. So, panel, what other incriminating Google searches did detectives find on William Johnson's computer? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What they should have found was how to rob a bank without getting caught. Um, <laughs> but what they probably did find was how to commit a jailbreak. <laughs> <laughs> Toby Ball, what about you? What other incriminating Google searches did detectives find on Mr. William Johnson's computer? Which local drug dealers will accept stolen money? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And Kevin, what other incriminating Google searches did detectives find on Mr. Willie Johnson's computer? Unsolved cold cases that are good for podcasts, Georgia. <laughs> not a filmmaker, not a podcaster, also not a podcaster or a filmmaker. Is that right? Exactly. All right. So, Laura Bricker, we should end it on that note. But before we do, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do. So I was all set to go with the deaf white cats in Australia because apparently that's a thing. Um, when a great email submission came my way today from Carla and her cat Handy, a 12-year-old orange tabby. So, again, you know I love the orange tabbies. Racist. He occasionally escapes from the house for an all-nighter. 
and now she knows what he's doing because he was caught on her neighbor's surveillance camera outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the neighbor texted her a photo. Okay, cat lady, I think Handy confused our house for your house, kicking off my doorbell at 1.30 a.m. Nice. So Handy is this week's cat slash crime of the week. I think William Johnson and Handy probably have a very interesting Google search. So, Laura Bricker, (laughs) if people want to tweet to you, perhaps, instead of sending me emails that I then have to forward to you with their pet slash cat of the week, how can they reach you online? At Laura Bricker. And Bobby Tall, if listeners want to tweet to you, how can they find you? At Bobby Tall NH. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, that's at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if listeners want to interact with you, perhaps give you advice on how Steven, your alter ego, could do better at that Kapari ad, how can they find you online? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb You can also check out my new podcast, HGTV and Me. Please subscribe. It's super fun. And this next week's episode is about everyone's favorite couple, Tarek and Christina from Flip or Flop. You can tweet to our show at Crime Writers On and join the fine folks on the official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group or leave a comment on our regular Facebook page. Go to our website for our newsletter. Subscribe now to get exclusive ad-free content from our team at stitcherpremium.com slash crime. If you love this show or any of our other shows, please tell a friend. And if you haven't already, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Line production by the very handsome, soon-to-be U.S. Senate page, Henry Lavoie. Our theme song was performed by Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble. This show was recorded in the Podcast Hall of Justice, formerly known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we are definitely not spying on people having sex against their will. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. later. Remember the first time you had one at the mall? Yeah. Started Roy Moore. Just kidding. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just say it again. Virtue Labs is a new hair care brand with a goal of giving everyone the best hair scientifically possible with an incredible new protein. Alpha Carotene 60KU is identical to the carotene in your own hair and has the power to resurface and fill in cracks from damage, meaning more bounce, more shine, and more life for your hair. And now you can get it exclusively in Virtue Labs line of shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Ready to experience it? Just visit VirtueLabs.com and use the code CRIME. CRIME. To try virtue at 10% off plus free shipping.